hope everybody had a great Valentine's weekend. Um, I, I got to speak at the uh, uh, BBA Valentine Banquet on Thursday, and I told all of them it was a senior adult banquet, and I told them all that I, after that was over with, I had a hot date with my wife. And so as soon as I got done, it was great. All these uh, uh, older people were like, get out of here. You've got a date to go to. And so it kind of made me feel real good. I, we were able to get away and have a great time. I hope you guys did as well. We are in the middle of our Greater Love series here at Emmanuel, and we've been talking about love for the last few weeks and uh, expressions of love and how that is really defined for us in Scripture and what Scripture says about that. And we started off uh, talking about greater love, right? This is a verse on the front of your, uh, past, on your, front of your bulletins. Greater love has no man than this. He would lay down his life for his friend. We talked about how God demonstrates greater love for us, and we really pulled all that from John 15, 12, which is a verse I've got on the screen, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus looks at us and gives us this incredible command to love, and then he says just a few verses later in verse 16, this is my command, love each other. And that was not an optional love. That wasn't a well, if I feel like it or if I'm in the right mood or if I'm in the right headspace or if I really like that person or if they really like me, then I'll love uh, each other. But God just says uh, very plainly, love each other. And that's our call and that's our responsibility to live out and to flesh out in everyday life. And so last week, we talked about how that's really expressed through uh, kind of some controversial passages of Scripture when it regards to mutual submission in marriage and how that looks like. And I said last week, and I believe this, that God's love for us should be best expressed in how we love our spouse. And so if you're not loving your spouse well, then you're a poor representation of how God loves you. And that's a hard verses to say. Those are even harder things to say from a pulpit because that means we've got something to live up to, right? We've got some, some things that are, 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 should be you know, top priority for us in our life. And sometimes we live that and sometimes we don't. I was reading a book this last week. It's kind of like a devotion book. It's not really, but I'm using it as that. And he talks about the necessary requirements for love. He says there has to be three things uh, necessary for love to exist. There has to be a subject, an object, and the verb. The subject, which would be the person loving, right? The person, the lover, right? The object, the thing that is being loved, and the actual verb of love, the love expressed between the two of them. Those three things must all be present for love to exist. All three existing in one thought, which means that love in its very essence is triune. It's three in one. And what's great about this is in 1 John, the Bible tells us, 1 John 4 says that God is love. And isn't it great that love, triune, all three things must be present. God is triune in himself. And when it says that God is love, we know that the object of that love is the Father, that he gives love, that he is the, the one loving, that the subject of that love is the Son, and that the, the love that emanates from them is the Spirit, three in one. And we can't, I say all that because I, I, I cannot express more or heavily how we cannot deviate love from God. You cannot have love and not have God, and you cannot have God and not have love. They are the same thing. We cannot ever separate the two thoughts together. So when we talk about love and we talk about all that, we have to talk about the origin of that love, which is 
God. And so all these things are drawing hard lines back to the Father and his love for us, his love for the Son, and how the Spirit is equating that love to us even in this moment. I think it's so important to have that understanding and that foundation because what we're going to talk about today is really kind of hard. It's going to be kind of deep, and we're going to, we're going to hopefully see and hear and apply what love is, and really answer the question that Hadaway asked us way back in 1992, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more, right? We all know that song, and it'll be in your head for the rest of the day. Get through your Bibles, go to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be in 12 and 13, uh, but we're going to kind of get into a passage of Scripture that everybody here is familiar with, and, and I think maybe that is even... Um, probably read at your wedding. If those of you who could remember all the things that were said at your weddings, I'm sure that you do. Uh, especially if I uh, did your wedding, then I'm sure you remember every word that I said. And you don't remember anything else except for what came out of the pastor's mouth. But I bet you this passage of scripture we're going to read today was read at your wedding. Or maybe you've even quoted it or maybe you've even flippantly said it. Because what's so great about this passage of scripture is the same thing that makes it so awful. And what's so awful and so great about this passage of Scripture is that it's common and that we're familiar with it and that we just read it and we go, yeah, 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 love is patient, love is kind, it's not a big deal. We know this passage of Scripture because we've read it or maybe we've heard it or, you know, like I said, it's probably been taught to you a number of different times, but our familiarity with this passage of Scripture makes us lose something in it. We do the same thing with John 3.16, right? We all know John 3.16, right? We could all say that. We could probably say that in our sleep, but what we've done is we've made that passage of Scripture so commonplace and so familiar that we've lost the intensity of what that passage of Scripture actually says, that God so loved all of us that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, when we sit and think about the the deep meaning of John 3.16, then we recognize just how world-changing and life-altering that verse is. Listen, this morning, this very morning, just a few minutes ago, I had the opportunity to lead somebody to Christ in my office. And like you could just feel the presence of God in the room in that place because God loved us so much. He gave the opportunity for his son to come and to die for us. And we now have right relationship with the Father because we put our faith and trust and hope in him. And that can never be commonplace. But this is exactly what we do. Ah, oh, yeah, well, God's so love. We know that John 3, 16, we got it. There's always somebody at a football game with that sign. Like we know it. And we do the same thing with this passage of Scripture this morning. So what I want us to do, If you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. Don't do that to Scripture. Don't make Scripture commonplace because there's nothing common about the Word of God. When we read it, we should read it with awe and wonder every time and go, wow, this is is the very words of God, and this is changing everything that I do and every way that I live and every way that I love. And so if you go back in chapter 12, let's kind of catch the very beginning of, of all this because if we, if we don't get the context, we don't really understand what's going on. I remember that 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It is a letter of kind of correction to them. If you read through it, he's kind of saying, don't do this and stop doing this and why are you doing it like this? Uh, he's kind of not getting on to them, but he is kind of trying to lay out some correct uh, theology and some correct teaching and some correct behavior. And if you read in, uh, in chapter 12, it starts off in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now about spiritual gifts, because what he had just done in chapter 11 is he's just got through kind of correcting them on some things like the Lord's Supper 
they were abusing that. There were some people who were getting to take it, and they weren't really taking it seriously, and they'd lost the wonder of it. And so he's like, he, he, he addressed all that stuff, and he goes, now, about spiritual gifts. He's like, okay, I'm done with that. Now we're going to move forward. And he starts uh, kind of laying out what we know about what we call the spiritual gifts. And we believe as a church, and I believe as your pastor, that when you are saved, you are gifted. And he lists off some of those gifts here, uh, whether it's healing or faith or prophecy or speaking in tongues or interpreting the tongues. All through chapter 12, he kind of goes, through all those things. If you have never taken a spiritual gift assessment or a spiritual, I hate to call it a test because everybody feels like they're back in the fifth grade again. If you haven't taken a spiritual gift analysis, that's a fancy word to say test, then, then email me this week and I'll shoot you one over because they're fantastic. You should know what your spiritual gifts are because God gave them to you so that you would use them, right? We want you to use them in the church. We want to use them in, uh, in your life and you are gifted in ways that I may not be. And I may be gifted in ways that you may not be. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the church in Corinth in chapter 12. He's like, listen, there's no, there's no hierarchy of this. Just because some persons can do this and some people can do this doesn't mean that you're not still important. He uses the analogy of we are in the body of Christ, right? And he's saying every member has its own function and every function is equally as important. Nobody can say you're more important than somebody else, right? And so he goes through all of that. And then he wraps it up in, in verse 29. It's the end of uh, that passage of Scripture in chapter 12. He says this, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of hearing or healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts? And now I will show you the most excellent Way. I read that passage of scripture, I think about Bill and Ted, right? The most excellent way, right? And here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, of all the things that you can do, of all the things, of the prophets and teaching and miracles and prophecy and healing and all that kind of stuff, there's something even greater. There's something even better. And I'm about to tell you what it is. That, that word, the most excellent way, that little phrase means literally exceedingly, beyond measure, superior. And it, it, it literally transfer, translates into throwing beyond. And so take whatever you think is good and great about those things and throw even further than that. Throw even more beyond that thought because there's something better, something, our purpose, greater than those. Look at this, chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Church, of all the things that you can do for God, Love is the greatest of all of them. Paul says, I can have all these other things. I can have prophecy and tongues and faith and healing and, and giving. I can even die. I can, I can die for what I believe in. And none of that matters unless we love. He literally says, I am nothing. That, that, that translates better into I am no one, right? I am a nobody. If I don't do this, and I believe that a lot of our life, 
is so focused around the idea of building a name for ourselves and being somebody. Like, listen, we, we like to list off our accomplishments and, and, and we like to kind of brag about the things we can do. You can work hard so you can retire early. We save so that we can spend. We invest in our kids and we build our businesses and we attend church and maybe we even serve the church and we give and we learn and we teach. But if we don't love, none of that matters. We can, we can do all the right things. You can have every hobby and sport, have your kid involved in all that, and you can invest in all the lessons and all the instruction, and you can train, and you can teach them everything about everything. But if you don't love your kids, then it doesn't matter. You can, you can invest in your marriage, and you can go on vacations, and you can build a house, and you can do all the things that married couples do. But if you don't love your spouse right and well, then it doesn't matter. You can, you can work your fingers to the bone and build a business and, and get promotions and do all the things in, in, a, in a secular whatever job mentality. But if you don't love people, then it doesn't matter. We're a room full of nobodies. And I love that. I love that Paul says here so plain and so clear. Listen, I can do all these great things, but if I don't love, I'm a nobody. Do we really believe that when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to ask us how many vacations we went on? Or, or how many, how many, um, how many uh, sports teams our kids made it on? Do you really think he's going to ask us about that? Or do you think he's going to look at us? I think he's going to look at us and say, did you love God and did you love other people? Because those are the two commands that he gave us. Those are the two most important things he said. Of all the things that are important, love God and love others. I think all that other stuff is important. There's nothing wrong with, with working hard. There's nothing wrong with investing in your marriage. There's nothing wrong with having your kid on every team that you want him to be on. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's accompanied with love. Because love is the only lasting quality of it all. Now, this is not just limited to worldly things. That's we get in the pastor mentality and we think, okay, well, he's just talking about the world. He's just talking about how we invest and, and, and chase after things, quote unquote, not church things. But this also hits very close to home when it comes to spiritual things as well. He says, if I have faith that can move mountains, I mean, if I, if I do all the right church things, if I believe God to do everything that he can do, but I don't love people, then I am nothing. If I, he, said, he even says, and this is spoken in a world where to some the greatest thing that you can do for the gospel is to die for it. Martyrdom was a huge like, test of your faith. The early first century church was if you, if you really believed it, then you were willing to die for it. He's speaking to people who were willing to die for it. He said, I can surrender my body to the flames. I can die for this. But if I don't love people, then I died for nothing. So stop chasing and stop longing for things that don't matter. Do we want to be gifted by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Do we want to use those gifts for his glory? Absolutely. But if we're not loving people, then none of those things matter. And some of you may say, listen, I know my spiritual gifts. I have the gift of prophecy or I have the gift of discernment or I have the gift of teaching or I have the gift of serving or I have this. Listen, all that's great. But if you're not doing it to love people, then it doesn't matter. He says, everything boils down to this. There's something bigger. There's something greater, and it's love. 
So from this point, Paul does something that is almost impossible to do. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this 1 Corinthians 13 passage, this verse 4 through 8, really, and, and, and see kind of an impossible task that Paul does. He says, love is, love is not, love does, love does not, and love never does. And we're going to look at all these things. And what I don't want today to be, I don't want this to be a vocabulary lesson, but here's what I've done over the past two weeks. I've taken all these words and I've gone back to the original uh, word in the original language and I've, I've kind of defined them. I just write, I, I use those yellow notepads in my office. I go through them like crazy. And so I write everything out and I was writing out what these words mean and the, the, the direct de- definitions of those. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, we're going to kind of we're going to read through this passage of Scripture, then we're going to clump them together. Okay, So we're going to look at love is, we're going to look at what love is and what love is not. We're going to look at what love does and what love does not. Okay, And so it's just the easiest way for my mind to work through it. And there's going to be a lot of words and maybe a lot of definitions on the board, and I don't want you to get lost in those, but I do want you to see the deeper meaning of what love is as Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians. So let's read this passage of Scripture together. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So here's, here's the very familiar passage of Scripture. And so here's how we're going to do. We're going to break this down into number one, love is. Love is, it says, patient and kind. Of all the things he lists off there, he lists off that love is patient and love is kind. Patient means slow to give up, slow to punish. Kind means to show yourself mild. I love this, right? And you know this to be true. You can't just tell or even just show your kids or your spouse or the people that, who are close to you that you love them once or twice, like it's fleeting. You know, I, I, I joked last time about the, the guy in our church. I don't remember who it was who said it, but I remember him saying it. I told my wife I loved her when I got married, and if I changed my mind, I'd let her know. We can't do that. We can't just we can't do this fleeting and just go, okay, this is a once-in-a-lifetime or this kind of this flash-in-the-pan moment. This is a slow show. This is a slow show to consistently prove over and over and over again. Let's, let's take this a step further than just the people who we are in real close relationship with. What about the people who annoy you? Let's talk, we're going to talk a little bit about more about that next week, but it's fun to talk about people who annoy us, right? We all like to talk about those folks. Let's talk about the people who annoy us. When's the last time that somebody came up and you're just like, oh, it's Deborah again, right? And you just don't want to have to deal with Deborah. And Deborah's coming and she's got all her Deborah stuff that she comes with. And you just, everything just kind of crawls and kind of pulls in on the inside of you. If your name's Deborah and you're here this morning, I'm sorry. I just pulled that out of thin air. Uh, and it just kind of pulls in on you. What if, what if the next time you got into a situation with Deborah or you got into an argument with somebody or you got into a kind of a just a little bit of a kind of a spurred moment what if you just slowed down what if you just slowed down and kind of kind of got your wits allows you to kind of gather yourself it kind of allows you to kind of take a deep breath and maybe have a new perspective what if you just slowed down 
and showed what love is? What if you just had a slow show? Because love is patient and love is kind. It allows you to have this new opportunity. I, I talk about all the time about reacting uh, and responding. There's a big difference between reacting to somebody and responding to somebody. What if, what if you just slowed down enough so that you could respond and not react? That's what love is. It's a slow show. Look at number two. Love is not. Love is not, and he lists off three things for us. Love is not proud. It's not self-seeking, and it's not easily angered. Proud means to be puffed up, to be uh, lofty, right? Self-seeking means to aim in at one's self, to point everything about you back to yourself, and to be easily angered It's really is to sharpen, to make sharp, or to despise, right? When you, when you see the, the meaning of those words, don't they take a new kind of angle on, on how really love is not? Love is not puffed up, it's not aimed in, it's not sharp, and it's not despising. You know that pride and selfishness and anger, all those things are sins of the heart, right? And we know that, that if we have all that in that, we're not loving well. And I think what's very interesting is in Jeremiah chapter 17, he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? And we think about all those things that are sins of the heart, and, and we identify very well with Jeremiah going, how, yeah, how, how can the heart be so wicked and so awful? Do you know that in Scripture that when, uh, when Jesus says that he had compassion on people. Do you know where that seed of emotion was? Do you know where compassion seed of emotion was? It was in your guts. It was in your, the word literally in the, in the scripture is your bowels, right? And so when you, it's like, it gives new meaning to you, like, I love you with all my guts, right? Don't, don't do that. Don't write that on your Valentine's Day card. Well, that's what that means. But the Bible also parallels that idea with compassion and deep-seated feelings with your heart, where that's where God says, I want you to love me from, because that's where it's expressed from. And so if we get in Jeremiah with this deceitfully, is, is utterly deceitful and desperately wicked, who can understand it? In verse 10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Isn't that great? I search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And so my question to us this morning is, if all these pride and selfishness and anger all comes from the heart, what would God see if he searched our hearts? What would he see in you? If it's pride and if it's selfishness, if it's anger, then it's not love. And so for my, the way my mind works, I just broke, love is not a sharp aim in. I love that. Love is not a sharp aim in. Love is a slow show. And here, I'm, I'm just trying to bring some context to this really deep. Paul's really just trying to explain a little bit of what this is. It's really an un. un explainable event. Love is more about others than it is about you. Remember when we started this morning with the subject and the object and the verb, really like love requires all three of those things, but it's focused on only two of them, the object and the verb. It's your, your love has to be focused more on what you're loving or who you're loving and the love being expressed. Meaning that if your marriage is more about your happiness than it is about your spouse, then it's not defined by love. If your relationship with your coworkers are more about how they can do things to help you than it is about you expressing love to them, then your relationship with your coworkers is not defined by love. If 
if your church experience, hello, this is hard. If your church experience is more about making you feel better than it is about reaching the lost with the gospel, it's appeasement you're after and not love. Listen, church, love is not a sharp aim in. It's never directed in. It's always directed out. So let's see what love does. It keeps going. Love does. And this is the things out of that passage of Scripture. It says that love does. It rejoices in truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Okay, so love does these things. Rejoices in truth means to congratulate, right? It's always excited about truth. Uh, I love the definition of protects. It's this idea of a thick cover to hide others' faults. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great definition for the word protect? To trust means to have confidence in, hopes means to be expecting, and persevere means to bear bravely and calmly. Means we can handle anything. Love can handle anything. And I love all these words. I know we keep kind of throwing that word out there, love, but I do love these words because rejoicing, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering, what all, these are all action words, right? These are all words that, have, uh, that are, are verbs in our vocabulary. They're all words that have something to do behind them. <laughs> in real talk, we could put almost any outward-focused action on this list. And so I'm going to say it like this. Love does. When we're defining what does love do, love does. It always does for somebody else more than ourselves. It's not just expressed, but it's not just communicated, but it's expressed. It's not inferred, but it's expounded upon. Love does. That's number three. It protects, it rejoices, it perseveres, it trusts, it hopes, and it does all of that for other people. None of it is turned inward. And if you're doing something, listen, if you're doing something, so that somebody would do something back for you, that's not love. Y'all remember, okay, here's, here's my weird family. Um, I, I, my grandparents lived in Missouri. We lived in Missouri for a long time. And, um, and I remember as a kid, my, my grandmother and my mom and my aunt and my sister would all lay in the floor on their side, and one right beside the other one, and they would scratch and tickle each other's backs, and, and while you're doing it to somebody, somebody's doing it to you, except unless you're on the end. And sometimes the end was the good one to be on because you didn't have to do it to anybody else while it was happening to you. But they would do that, and they'd do that, and then after, after 10 minutes, they'd go, roll over, and they'd roll over and do it to the other person on the other side. It's the weirdest thing in the world. My family's just a little weird. But here's the thing. We see that as love sometimes do. You do for me, and I'll do for you. If you do for me, then I will do for you. Love does and it does it in the most incredible way. Listen, there's a book uh, that I, I talk about all the time and I, I tell people that any kind of uh, premarital or marital counseling things that I talk about, I talk about this book. It's written by Gary Chapman. It's called The Five Love Languages. Most of you have probably already read it, at least not maybe even heard of it. Uh, and Gary Chapman does an incredible job of talking about how we love each other and how we're filling it. Our job is to fill each other's love tanks and that as we're consistently filling others, hopefully they're filling ours as well. And he divides those languages into five different love expressions. It's physical touch, words of affirmation, giving the gifts, uh, service, and quality time. 
Okay? And, and the whole goal of the book is that you learn to speak the language of your spouse. Because we're different people and we operate in different realms. And sometimes we're expressing a love language that our, our spouse doesn't understand. And they don't get it. And so you may be a gift giver or, or saying, listen, I just want to give gifts. And I want to give gifts. And, and they're over there going, thanks, but I just want to spend time with you. I don't care about all this stuff. And see, we're, we're speaking two different languages. And the whole goal and focus of this book, it's really great, is to learn to speak the language of the other person. Now, here's where I put my two cents in because I'm not a New York Times bestselling author. I put my two cents in. But the, the, the thing that the whole book never addresses is the negative side of the five love languages. And the negative side of that is this. When people get into a position when they begin to manipulate their expression of love because they want something in return first. I will spend quality time with you if you do acts of service for me. I will do this if you do that. Or I'm not going to do your love language until you do my love language. See how we can manipulate even the most basic expressions of love? And listen, we do this all the time. I'm not going to do this because they don't ever do that. I'm not going to call them because she never calls me. Or I'm not going to check on them because they never check on me. We do this all the time. And the Bible says, listen, love does. And never is that ever if they do for or when they do for me. It's just we are to do without any without any reservation, without any manipulation, without ever saying, I'm not going to unless they do. That doesn't, that's not love because love does. Number four, here we go. Love does not. And this is one of my favorites because this is really uh, where we got to get down to the, the, the meat and potatoes of all this. Love does not, it lists off, it does not envy, it does not boast, uh, it does not delight in evil, and then we're inferring it does not keep a record of wrong. It says it keeps no record of wrongs, and so we're inferring the does not in there, okay? And so envy is just boiling with hatred. Do you see, the, see how that's just bigger than just being angry at somebody? It's simmering. It's a long simmer of envy. Boast is to embellish, delight in evil. That word delight in evil is really celebrate. It's the same uh, word that is used. It says love rejoices in truth, uh, does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. That same word is the same word. It should say love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in truth. That's how that scripture should, the better term for that is. And so it's, it's this idea of celebrating evil, and it does not keep a record of wrong, which means that you don't calculate. Oh. That's a great word, right? Calculate. How many, oh, I'm not going to raise our hands. I'm going to say, how many of you feel like love is calculated? We're not going to do that. Here, here's the deal. We cannot understand love because love does not keep a record. That doesn't mean that you haven't been hurt. It doesn't mean that you don't talk through things. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that it's not calculated. It means that you don't, you don't bring it up at the specific time to hurt somebody even worse. It's it's. It's that it's not calculated. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It, it, those things, pride, hatred, evil, condemnation, all those things does not equate love. But yet, sometimes we do these things thinking that it elevates us in the eyes of others, but it never, ever does. You know people like this. 
You know people who, who would say, yeah, we manipulate and we skew and we turn love into something that it's not. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, there's envy there and there's boast there and there's, there's evil in that. And there's all this kind of calculated moves and all that kind of stuff. We know people like that because what we call them? We call them insecure and we call them manipulative. And we say that they belittle people and that they're judgmental and that they, they just speak condemnation. They don't speak grace, right? Don't be those people because love does not do those things. And so in my eloquent way of speaking, you already see verse number or point number four, love does not not love because all those things are not love. We can't say, oh, I, I am so envious. And that mean, oh, I love this person. I can't say that, oh my goodness, I just, I, I just, I'm, I, this is just evil and this is so bad and this is so terrible and I'm going to be so excited about that happening in their life. That means that you don't love them. And so the, and the only way that I can logically lay it out is that love does not not love because none of that stuff is love. He says very easily, this is not love. So here's my last thought and it's a long one, but I'm going to be done after this. We've gone through this list of things that love is and is not, does and does not. And, and they're great descriptors of what love is. But the last thing I want us to see is that love never fails. Now, this is the only time he uses the word never. He uses the word does. He uses the word always a few times. He uses the word is and is not. But there's only one that he says love never. And it's he never, love never fails. Do you know what that word fails means? It's interesting. I love it. It means to lose authority or to be removed from power by death. Which means for us, this is the greatest promise of all of them. If you don't remember any of the scripture, remember love never fails. And we've got that kind of ingrained in us. But it just means that it never diminishes. It never goes away. It never lowers itself to any other level than the highest level possible because that's what real love is, which means we can't use the excuse of a lack of love. We can't excuse the poor expression of love and we can't excuse the manipulated version of love because all that stuff is not love because love never fails. It never comes down as an excuse or a lack of or a manipulated version because if that's what it is, it's not love because love never fails. And here's the greatest part of all of this. In the context of this passage of Scripture, all that Paul is explaining and all that he's trying to tell us in the church in Corinth, really, and to us as well, and he's not talking about parent-child relationships. He's not talking about husband and wife relationships. When we read this, uh, love is patient, love is kind, and we, we apply that to, to marriages, yes, it applies because all the principles are the same, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not even talking about God and human relationships. In the context of this whole incredible passage of Scripture about what love is, he's talking about how the church should love each other. Remember in chapter 12 where he goes through this whole thing about how you're the body of Christ and each one of you are a part of it and he goes on to tell how the body should function and how the gifts should work together and how there's something even greater than this and it's how we love in the church. And so with all that in mind, and we go, okay, love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast, love is not envious, it does not jealous, it's not self-seeking, all those kind of things. That's all in the context of how we love each other. 
yeah, the, the principle still applies with marriages. Don't get me wrong. I think that nobody's wrong in preaching it like that. But it's not contextual to what the scripture says. In context, it's how we love each other. So, church, how are you loving the body of Christ? How are you loving each other? Are you loving well? Listen, it means that it's a slow show and not a sharp aim. Meaning that you're, if you're mad or upset at the church or if you've not gotten your way on something or you feel like the church owes you something in some way or if you feel like that maybe your needs aren't being catered to or are, are, are not being placed above somebody else's, that's not love. That's not the defining characteristics of the church. If, it means that if you continue to place others' needs above, uh, above your own, it means that you sacrifice your wants so that others can know him. It means that we're a church full of people who are trying not to get our way. Isn't that great? Isn't that the defining characteristic of a church is that we're a church not trying to get our way? Because when we get our way, it means we're not loving people. It means that we would rather see people saved, people in committed, deepening relationship with Jesus than having our wants and desires catered to. It means it's not a sharp aim in. It's a slow show of love. And I know that everybody here would say, no, no, preacher, I, I, I don't want my needs to be met on, at the expense of somebody not hearing the gospel, right? We, we, we would all say that because we're all at church on Sunday morning. And we all say, yes, that's, that's not it, but so let's get real. Let's take it even a step further than that. Do you have unresolved conflict with somebody in the church? Do you have somebody within the body that you would say, um, maybe I, I, I do go out of my way to avoid them? Maybe it's with, uh, listen, it could be a church member, it could be a staff member, it could be a deacon, it could be a teacher, it could be somebody in this church. And you sit back and you think with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, I'll show them. I won't go to that service or I won't show up for that small group anymore. I'm, I'm not going to talk to them when I see I'm going to pass them in the hallway and not say anything. Listen, if that's what's going on, that's not love. And he says all of that to say, church, how are you, how are you loving each other? Is your love in the body a, a doing love? Or is it a fake love? I mean this. Jesus didn't just die for the church so that us can come in and sit down once a week and sit and sing and listen. That never has been the, the model of what church is. I believe that that's a model of a programmatic church, right? Like we have this program or we have that program. We have this for your kids. We have that for your adults or we have this for your students. That's, that's okay. We can have programmatic models, but that's not the model of the church, right? The early church, I believe, would be appalled by what we quote unquote call church now because they very much believe that if you didn't live it, then you didn't believe it. If it was just about gathering and, and saying all the right things at the right time, then, then it would never have lasted as long as it was because those men and women knew that they have to live this beyond the walls of the church and actually in their relationships and in the world and in their businesses and in their families and in their context of every day because that's what it really meant to be a Christ follower. And what we've turned that into is, well, we just come and we sit and we sing and then we leave. That's never being the model of what a church is. The love 
for the body is an active love. It is a serving love. It is a sacrificial love. Listen, with, with the average of folks that we have when everybody's not sick and the, the flu hasn't been kind of swept through our town, when, when we're normal and we're average, we've got about 275 to 300 people here every Sunday, okay? Uh, so we've got a good crowd of folks that are, are, are what we would consider members and, and regular attenders of our church. I think that our attendance, quote-unquote, is about that, but I think our membership is closer to almost 600, which means there's a lot of folks that just aren't always here, and that's okay. We need to get them back, but here's the reality. With about 300 people here, then uh, let's just be real honest. If you love the church, then our uh, budget should never not be met. If you love like you're supposed to, then loving is a giving love. If, with, the, with the church size that we have, let's be real, uh, there should never be a point where we are lacking teachers. We should not. Because we are serving the church. There should never be a point where we do a community event. Listen, church, we've done community events over the last year, and there's been five people show up. Five people to show up and love on people in our community. That should never happen. Every time we do something, there should be a boatload of folks that show up and say, listen, I, I'm a doing, this is a doing kind of love, and I'm here as a body, and I want to I help, and I want to love, and I want to see life change in other people, and I'm here to sacrifice my afternoon or sacrifice my evening or sacrifice this next amount of time because I am here to love on people. It's an active love. We cannot sit back on our blessed assurance and go, well, that's for somebody else. And listen, I'm going to say this, and it's real hard, and I'm just hearing my heart in this. There should be never a point where somebody has to hold your hand through that process either. Well, I don't know where they need. I, I don't know if I can. I don't, no, that's not love. Love is I show up, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll show up, and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Or I'll show up, and I'll take charge, and I'll say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm kind of good at organizing things. Let me organize this. Or, hey, I, I'm good at planning this kind of stuff. Help me, let me help you plan this. This is what an active body of Christ does. It's an active love. There should never be a point where we are sitting around doing nothing because, church, that's not love. And so when we look at all of this and we see this challenge to love as an active, realistic, appropriately expression of love for others, Paul's not making all this up on his own. He's not taking all this and expounding on, oh, this is what love is, this is what's not. He took all of this from John 15, 12, what we read at the very beginning of my message. This is my command, love each other. So church, how are you loving? Are you loving each other the way you're supposed to? Are you loving our community the way you're supposed to? Are you loving the body the way? Listen, all that applies. We can, we can narrow that down from a very big picture of the community all the way down to our church, all the way down to our families, all the way down to our spouses and our kids. We can narrow that all the way down. But what Paul's saying is don't get too narrow in your vision of this because this is not just for married people. This is for the body. So church, I ask you again, are you loving? Is it a slow show? Is it a doing, active type of love? Because that's what love is. Let's stand together and bow our heads. And TJ's going to come and he's going to lead us in just a quick song of response because this is what this is. This is an opportunity for you to understand on a big level that love has to be active. And I believe a lot of us are not loving well. 
If you need to come forward and talk to me or Dustin, we'd love to do that. We'd love to pray with you. If you need to come and just pray at the altar, you're welcome to pray at the altar. You're welcome to pray where you are. But here's what I want. Above all things, I want us to love well. And I want us to stop making excuses for love because an excuse is not real love. Because love never fails. Hey, this is Matt Overall. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 1030. Our small groups start at 930. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.